So you've joined us for part three of this series, I Am Strong, and each week we're asking hard questions about God and our suffering, and we're finding not cliche bumper sticker answers, but we're finding really deep and meaningful answers. I've shared throughout this series about a medical condition in my life that drove me to really study pain and suffering in scripture. I couldn't settle for just a little Christian cliche or phrase or hallmark saying. I needed something that actually worked. And I've found that in the word of God. I've seen it lived out not only in my life, but in the lives of other people who've gone through all sorts of unthinkable suffering. I've seen it in the lives of widows who lost their firefighter husbands in a wildland firefighter. I've seen it in the life of a friend of mine named Joy who's been in a wheelchair for about 16 years. She's paralyzed from the waist down. She's found God's peace and his strength even in her paralysis. And my prayer for you today is that no matter where you are, no matter what your struggle is, that you would begin to access this supernatural peace that is available to you through Christ. So far in this series, we've learned that God is not the author of evil. We've learned that in our lives, whether it's cancer or miscarriage, divorce, murder, death, any kind of pain or suffering, we've learned that God's not the author of evil. He's not the problem maker, he's the problem solver. He's not the breaker, he's the fixer. And we've learned that the most important decision for each of us to make in our suffering and pain is this. Will you turn toward God with your pain or will you turn away from him because of your pain? And my big encouragement to you every week is turn to God with your pain, whatever it is. Believing that he's for you, believing that he's good, believing that he wants to help you and fix you and heal you. Well, last week we learned about God's restoration process, that this world which was broken by bad choices of people as well as a, a spiritual enemy called Satan, that God intervened in the person of Jesus to fix what is broken. But if you're like me, there might be days where you say, okay, I believe that, but why is it taking so long? <laughs> right? I believe that God's in the process of making things right, but sure seems to be taking his time. We feel that when the sting of pain is real in our lives. We feel that at the graveside. We feel that in the hospital waiting room. We feel that in the divorce court. We feel that when we're in a living room or a bedroom and there used to be another person who occupied another space and that person is gone. And we say, God, I wanna believe, but it sure doesn't feel like you're helping me right now. It doesn't feel like you're at work right now. Today, we're gonna talk about the times when you feel abandoned by God. And before we get too deep into it, I'll share kind of a cute story that happened two nights ago. My daughter Zoe, she's six years old. Uh, she came up to me and she said, Dad, what's a taxi collector? Hmm. I said, I, I don't know, Zoe, I've never heard of a taxi collector. She said, yeah, you know, a taxi collector. This goes around in circles for a little while. And finally, I dig a little deeper. I say, Zoe, where did you hear about a taxi collector? She said, well, at church, they were teaching me a story about Zacchaeus. He was really short and he was a taxi collector. I said, oh, Zoe, I think you mean a tax collector. She said, oh, tax collector, that's it. What's a tax collector? So I explained, it's a person who collects taxes. Next question, of course, from an inquisitive child, what are taxes? So I start to explain taxes and my older, my son, Jack, he comes in and he is just, he is just appalled at taxes. 
I explained that when you're a grown-up and you have a job and you work, the more money you make, the more they take. And he said, he, was just, he just could not believe this. And I said, well, you know, that's another example of the reality that we live in a fallen world where, where, things, where things are broken. So, you know, we're learning as we go through this series, the, the fall, it really does apply to every area of our lives. Uh, but the good news we're finding is there's a way out and there's a way to be sustained while we're down here. I want to tell you another funny story about my son, Jack. This happened a couple summers ago. It was summer vacation and they were, kids were out of school. Jack had a light fever at night. I think it was 99 or maybe 100. He went to bed. He woke up feeling great. So he just ran right out into the backyard, started playing. The sun's up. It's a summer day. He's just having fun. He's climbing trees. He's jumping on the playset. He's going down the slide. And my wife thinks, you know, Jack had a fever yesterday. We should bring him in and just see what his temperature is. So she calls Jack in and she's got this new thermometer that goes across the forehead and she takes his temperature and it reads in Fahrenheit 107 degrees. And I think that thing has to be broken. That cannot be right. So we take it again two more times, 107 degrees. So I say, it, it has to be broken. Let's find the old one that goes under the tongue. We find the older thermometer. We put it under his tongue and it reads 106.5 so we call a friend who's a medical doctor because Jack has no symptoms. He's just happy. He doesn't have pain anywhere. We say, what do we do? She says, he's about to start having seizures at that temperature. You've got to strip him down. You've got to put ice on him, put a fan on him, give him Tylenol, give him ibuprofen, both of them at the same time, and let me know what happens. So we do all that. Half an hour goes by. It's still 104.5. But Jack's still happy. And she's, we call her back. She says, you've got to take him to the ER. That's just way too high. So we take Jack to the emergency room and the nurses are just marveling at this kid who has this fever who's just happy as a clam. He's just having a great time. And they start to poke and prod and do all these medical tests. And Jack's just being a great sport. He's using his imagination. Jack is not on a hospital bed. He's in a steam locomotive. And my job is to shovel the coal. You know, we're just having a good time and they're marveling that his temperature is so high, but he doesn't have any pain or symptoms. My wife and I are just marveling that his temperature is that high. We just, we didn't know they could go that high. That was, and everything's going fine until a different nurse comes in to administer a different test. And this nurse did not have the bedside manner of the others. I don't know, but she probably didn't have kids. Because she walks in and actually her test should have been the easiest one. I mean, at this point, they've drawn blood from Jack. They've poked in his ears. We've done an x-ray of his chest. He's doing great. She walks in. All she has is a long Q-tip to get some saliva from his throat. Should have been the easiest one. And she says, Jack, you're not going to like what we're about to do to you. Yeah. And I could just see as a dad, I could see Jack's eyes change. I could see his posture stiffen. And in that moment... He went from this little explorer who's on this journey with these giant tall grown-ups to this little victim who's going to be tortured by these huge tall grown-ups. You could just see the change in his posture. And so Jack starts to resist. And of course, they're like, you got to hold him down. And I start holding him down. He's writhing. He's struggling. He, everything in him is straining. It starts to look like a low-budget horror movie, you know, because we're all... We're all holding him and he's striving and straining and writhing and, and she gets up to him with her Q-tip thing and he starts to spit on her. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, you got your saliva sample, you know? <laughs> that's, 
that's one way to do it. We put Jack on an antibiotic. They never did figure out exactly what was going on, but the antibiotic worked, and a few days later it was down to 99, and then he was fine. But I have to tell you about the, that moment when I saw Jack's eyes change and his posture change, and he viewed me, his provider, his good, trustworthy dad. In that moment, he felt abandoned by me. He felt betrayed by me. I could just see it in his eyes. In just the a flip of a moment, his view of me totally changed. And I wanna talk with you about the times when you feel that way about God. Because the reality with our suffering is that sometimes we're kind of skipping through life and things are going okay and we kind of believe in God and things are fine. And then life starts to poke us and prod us. And whether it's through a cancer diagnosis or the loss of a loved one or the outright evil and injustice of the world or a miscarriage, all of a sudden we find ourselves in a horror movie scenario and life is pinning us down. And we wouldn't say, I don't believe in God anymore, but everything in our senses and our posture is screaming for survival and saying, God, if you're for me, what is going on? I feel abandoned, I feel betrayed. It's a moment that all of us will have in this broken world. And so today we're wrestling with that question, what can you do when you feel like God has abandoned you? What can you do when you still wanna believe in your heart that God is good, but all your pain sensors, everything you see, everything you feel is screaming that he's against you, that he's left you, or even worse, that he's outright torturing you and trying to harm you. What can you do in that moment? Well, I want to share with you some good news. I want to share with you God's answer. It's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. And what we're going to see today is a true story of three Jesus followers. They loved Jesus so much. They were all out believers in Jesus, and they actually knew him in real life, and they knew him in a deeply emotional way. And yet, when they face a problem and they send a message to Jesus, he doesn't come to them and they feel abandoned, just like you have felt abandoned. Let's read the story starting in John chapter 11. We're gonna see three characters, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They are siblings. And as I mentioned, they knew Jesus not as an acquaintance, they knew Jesus really well. We know from other stories in the gospel records that Jesus often went to their house in Bethany. Bethany was a little ways outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was this big, bustling metropolis where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. But when Jesus needed to escape the crowds, he would go to Bethany. And we know he would often stay at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. In fact, we're going to see this Mary is the one, you've maybe heard the story, where she had this perfume that was worth a year's wages, tens of thousands of dollars worth of perfume, and she pours it out on Jesus' feet as an act of worship when she realizes that he's God. These three knew Jesus deeply. They knew that he loved them, and they knew that they loved him, and they believed in him with a pure faith. So you can only imagine how abandoned they felt when they send out this word, Jesus, we need your help, and Jesus doesn't come. Let's read the story. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus lay sick, well, she's the same one who poured out the perfume on Jesus and wiped, wiped it with her hair. It's a very dramatic story. One of the most intimate stories in the New Testament, which is so significant for us to know. These people loved Jesus so much. 
Well, they send word to Jesus, the two sisters, and they say, Lord, the one you love is sick, verse 3. The one you love is sick. Now, by the way, this word love is going to be a theme through this story, even though we're going to see what appears to be betrayal and abandonment. We're going to see this word love running throughout it as a thread. When he heard this, verse 4, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Now, if you circle or underline in your Bible, you might circle or underline those three words, end in death. Because about four days from now, Mary and Martha are going to feel with everything in that they can see and hear that Jesus lied to them. Because you see, Jesus is not gonna get there in time to heal Lazarus. Here he says it's not gonna end in death. There's gonna be four days during which they think, Jesus lied to us. Jesus, who we thought would show up, didn't show up. Let's keep reading. Jesus says, this sickness will not end in death. Actually, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified in it. That's not a very encouraging answer, Jesus. Now look at this next verse. Jesus loved Martha. And he loved Mary, and he loved Lazarus, and yet, when he hears the cry for help, Lazarus is sick, please come heal him, he stayed where he was. Jesus loved them, but they call for him, and he doesn't immediately show up to heal Lazarus. Can you imagine how abandoned they felt? How betrayed they felt? Look at verse six. When he heard that Lazarus was sick, Jesus, he stayed where he was for two more days. So it's not like Jesus hears and he starts to journey to Lazarus, but it takes too long to get there. Jesus doesn't even change his itinerary, doesn't change his plans. And Lazarus, we're gonna see, passes away as a result. I want you to think of this from Lazarus's point of view. I want you to put yourself in Lazarus' shoes or sandals. You're laying on a bed, your lungs are getting weaker, you know you're dying, you can't get in and out quite enough oxygen to sustain your life, but you also know Jesus. And you've seen Jesus do miracles, you've seen Jesus heal people. You know that he can do anything, you fully believe that he's God. You've had him over for dinner, he's one of your closest friends. You've seen him heal complete strangers who walked up to him and said, hey, will you heal me? And he does, and you're his closest friend. So as you're laying there and your body is aching and you're gasping for breath and you know that you're dying, your friends come around you and you tell them, hey, don't worry. Mary and Martha are sending word to Jesus. I know he's gonna heal me. You're telling them stories. You're telling them about the time when Jesus healed someone remotely without even going there. You know, let, let me tell you about this story that happened. Jesus, one time, a guy came to Jesus and said, my son is sick. And Jesus said, your faith is so strong. Go back home. Your son's already healed. Maybe he'll do it that way. Or maybe he's going to come here in person. I'm not sure how, but I know he's going to heal me. Just you wait and see. Can you imagine the emotion for Lazarus believing like that with all his faith, with all his confidence when that messenger that the sisters sent returns alone. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus say, uh, 
is Jesus right behind you? And the messenger shakes his head. No. No, he's not coming. Man, I wonder if Lazarus, when he heard that, I wonder if he just, I wonder if he was just silent. Or I wonder if he kind of shook his head. He said, man, I really thought he was coming. I don't understand. Lazarus has to feel betrayed. Mary and Martha, the text tells us for sure, felt betrayed. Jesus, it's not that Jesus wasn't coming fast enough. Jesus wasn't coming at all. And I wonder if you've ever felt like this. In exchange for your dramatic faith, you get silence. In exchange for your sacrifice, you get absence from God. And you know that God's ultimate plan is good and he's gonna make it all right in the end. But right now in the moment, you're calling out to him and it just seems like he's not coming. It seems like he's missing. I want you to know today that it's not unspiritual to feel that tension. Lazarus felt it. Mary and Martha felt it after Lazarus passed away and breathed his final breath And here's the invaluable truth we're going to learn as we continue deeper into this story. We're going to learn that even when God seems absent, he's actually working for you. And when it hurts, he's actually weeping with you. You think of my son Jack in that emergency room. Every one of his five senses and everything he could feel emotionally and everything he knew screamed that I had betrayed him because I'm pinning him down and forcing him into something so painful and he can't understand as a four-year-old that I'm actually working for him to help him get better. And he can't understand as a four-year-old that as his eyes start to well up with tears that even as I'm holding him down, my eyes are welling up with tears. He can't understand that. In the same way, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, when they get the word that Jesus is not coming, they don't understand it. And there's things about your suffering that you can't understand. But what you can know today is that just like I was working for and weeping with my son, and we're gonna see, just like Jesus was actually working for and weeping with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the same God today is working for you and when the hurt seems like it's just too much he's weeping with you I want to give you six assurances from this true story six assurances for you when you feel abandoned by God and the first one is this God is working for me even when it looks like he doesn't care one of the reasons I'm so convinced that Jesus really was God and that the Bible is true is not only the historic reliability of the scripture manuscripts, but also this reality that when people make up a religion like Scientology or something, they make it all sound too good to be true. But with the Bible, we get these really unique stories like this one where we're outright told Jesus sometimes doesn't do it the way you want. He sometimes doesn't show up right away. There's, there's tension in scripture. There's, there's, you know what? It smells like it's actually real. Especially as a former investigative journalist and reporter and seeing how the world works. These stories are 
these stories are real. This is how stuff actually works. And what I love in this true story is that it sure looks like Jesus doesn't care. For the four days that Lazarus is dead, and however many days it took between the messenger returning and Lazarus dying, for that number of days, it sure looked like Jesus didn't care. Everything they could see and hear and smell and feel screamed that God didn't care, but the reality we're gonna see is that God was working for them even when it looked like he didn't care. And the same is true for you. Second, we learn this, God is working for me even when I feel angry or betrayed. So you're angry, so you're broken, so you're doubting. Doesn't mean that God stops working for you. We're gonna see this in verses 20 through 32. First, we see angry grief. We see angry grief from Martha. And, you know, depending on your household, chances are you've got some people in your household who are what I call exploders. And when they have a lot of emotion, they're scared, they're happy, whatever, they explode. They're loud people. And there's other people who are stuffers. And they're feeling lots of stuff, but they bottle it up and they contain it. With Martha and Mary, we're going to get one of each here, okay? Martha's an exploder. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, here's how this works. Jesus and his entourage, they're traveling by foot or by donkey or horseback. And these roads that connect these different villages, there's lots of travelers going back and forth. And a well-known person like Jesus... Someone sees him on the road and they actually head back home and they tell everyone in Bethany, guess what, Jesus is coming because he was really well-known rabbi teacher at this time. So before Jesus gets to Bethany, Martha hears he's on his way. Martha's angry. Martha is, Martha is piping mad. <laughs> so she goes out to meet him. She's like, I'm not waiting for him to get here. I'm gonna go meet him. She starts running down the road toward Jesus, Mary, is a stuffer. Mary's broken in her grief. She stays at home for the time being. And when Martha gets to Jesus, verse 21, she says, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Why didn't you turn around? Why didn't you come? We called for you. You say you love us. We love you. I know you could have helped him. If only you would have come, you could have stopped this. There's times when we feel this way. Lord, if only you would have stopped that drunk driver. If only you would have worked in my child's heart. If only you would have done this in my career. If only the diagnosis would have been different. If only you would have given a healing. If only you would have stopped that bullet. Where were you? What I love about this story is this is the full human emotion of angry grief. I've walked with lots of different people through lots of different kinds of grief and you get all these stages. There's a stage of denial, there's a stage of anger, sometimes a stage of just depression and just can't even get out of bed. And you know what this passage is teaching us? All of those human emotions do not make you unspiritual. All those human emotions do not make you unspiritual, they just make you human. Because look at this, as angry as Martha is, she still has faith. She says, God, Jesus, I'm mad at you. If you would have showed up, you could have healed him. 
But look at the next line. I know that even now, God the Father will give you whatever you ask for. I know that even now, you could fix it. I still believe in you. I'm angry, but I still believe in you. It's a tension. It's real life. You need to know that when a storm of emotions descends upon you in a tragedy or a difficulty and everything you feel is anger or depression or discouragement or anxiety, that your faith can still be strong in the midst of that storm. That storm doesn't mean you don't have faith. In fact, when you cling to your faith in that storm, it means you've got really strong faith. And Martha still believes in this Jesus who she feels abandoned by. Now let's look at Mary who has the broken grief, the betrayal of grief. Mary doesn't sprint to Jesus in anger like Martha does, but she does reach him eventually and she sees him and she just collapses at his feet. How, how beautiful. This is the same Mary who knelt down at Jesus' feet and poured out that expensive perfume and wiped it with her hair. She has given him her greatest gift. She has expressed the highest level of faith and love and now she feels completely betrayed by him. She still loves God, but she feels betrayed by God and all she can do is just collapse. And there's times where this describes us. Mary is not unspiritual in this moment. God is not displeased with Mary in this moment. And when your grief causes you to collapse in tears, God is not displeased with you. God does not think, oh, they have such little faith. We're actually gonna see in this story that he feels exactly what you're feeling and he weeps with you. Let's look at verse 32. When Mary reached the place, she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. It's a mixture of faith and feelings and you need to know today that when your feelings overwhelm you, it doesn't mean you don't have faith. You can choose faith in the storm of the feelings. Third thing we learn from this text is that God is preparing a better future than I can understand. That might sound like a cliche, it might sound like empty words, but I wanna challenge you to think about what each of those words mean, press them down into your heart and your soul, because here's the thing, what Martha and Mary asked for and Lazarus was a temporary healing in this life. In other words, if Jesus came to Lazarus and healed him, Lazarus is probably 30 or 40 years old, life expectancy at the time isn't too much longer, even if Jesus comes and heals him, Lazarus has maybe another decade, maybe two or three decades if he's very fortunate, but Lazarus would still die. Why? Because all of us die. Because Bill Gates is gonna die and Vladimir Putin's gonna die and Barack Obama's gonna die and every human leader, no matter how much power or money they have, no one has figured out how to beat death. And Jesus knows that there was a bigger problem to solve on earth than just Lazarus' temporary sickness. And so what Jesus is gonna do for Lazarus is bigger and better than he could have understood or imagined, and it is so in two ways. First, in this life, it ended up being bigger and better. And let's read that true story starting in verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved. By the way, this is one of four times 
where we're told in the text that Jesus was deeply moved in his emotions. So he's on his way to fix the problem. Jesus shows up, he gets to the village, and he knows, I am minutes away from raising Lazarus from the dead, and he gets intercepted by angry Martha and broken Mary. And you know what he could have done? He could have brushed right by him and been like, hey, I'm on my way to fix the problem. What are you so worked up about? He could have done that. In fact, I do that with my kids a lot. When they're crying about something, there's plenty of times, uh, you know, where I'm like, hey, I am gonna fix it, just relax. <laughs> and, and God could be like that in our suffering, right? He'd still be a good God if he was like, hey, all y'all chill, I'm fixing it. <laughs> He'd still be a good God. But he's so much more than that. He's not only a good God, he's a compassionate God. He's a tender God. And this is one of four times we're gonna see it gets much deeper than this where the text tells us Jesus, he doesn't only come and fix the problem, he joins them in their sorrow, in their emotion, and he's deeply moved. He shows up at the grave. It's a cave with a stone laid across the entrance and he says to the people, there's mourners all gathered around. People would mourn for a week or two. The whole village would shut down. Everyone's gathered there and Jesus says, take away the stone. But Lord... Martha says, by this time, there's a bad odor. I mean, Jesus, you're four days late, remember? If you had showed up when we called for you, we wouldn't have this problem. But because you didn't come, he's been dead for four days, and it's going to smell terrible. And to me, there's, there's a little bit of picture even in this. Because you know what? The broken parts of our lives, they smell bad. If you really open it up emotionally... There's a stench. You need to know that if you open up your deepest wounds to God, he can, he can handle the smell, okay? He can take it. And Jesus says, open it up. It's interesting. He didn't have to do this, but this is included in the story. Well, they do open the tomb. And Jesus says in verse 40, did I not tell you if you believe? Remember, Mary and Martha they held on to their belief even when everything they could see said that their belief was foolish. They held on to it. And he says, remember, I told you, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God, the glory of the one who created life in the first place. Doctors can do what they can to try to patch up what God made and try to sustain it for a few more years, but you're about to see the unbridled glory of the one who can actually create life out of nothing. And it's your faith that's gonna connect you to that power. So they took away the stone. In verse 41, Jesus looks up and he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And he continues to pray, but then in verse 43, he finishes up his prayer. And when Jesus had said this, he calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come on out. He's talking to a corpse. He's talking to a decomposing body. And with the authority of the one who spoke the galaxies into existence, he speaks to that dead body and he says, come on out. And verse 44 tells us the dead man stands up and he came out. His hands and feet still wrapped up in the mummy-like strips of linen, a cloth around his face. And Jesus says to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Uh, there's so many, so many pictures in this. 
Do you know that before you've trusted in Christ, scripture says you were dead in your trespasses and sins? You're unable to do the right thing. You're unable to be the best version of you. When you trust in Christ, you're raised to new life. And God says, take off the old way of life. Here's Lazarus who was literally dead for four days. Everyone smelled the smell when the tomb opened up and now his eyes open and his muscles tighten and they pull the strips of linen off. You know what? Talk about God doing something better than you could ask or imagine. Think about the rest of Lazarus's life on earth. He's like a celebrity in his village, right? Everyone's like, there's that guy. Anytime he goes to dinner, he goes to a bar, he's out on the street. Everyone's like, there's that guy. I saw him dead and now he's alive, right? I mean, God's plan was so much better than Mary or Martha or Lazarus could have imagined in this life. But here's also why Jesus delayed. Because Jesus knew that the reason he came to earth wasn't just to heal Lazarus, it was to heal you and me and all of humanity. And Jesus knew that if he just gave Lazarus one temporary healing, that'd be good for Lazarus for a little while. But if he was going to heal all of us and give all of us eternal life and give all of us freedom from guilt and shame and sin and evil and take us to a place where there are no murderers and no cancer, if he was gonna do that, then he would have to go to the cross and absorb upon himself the consequences for every mistake that's ever been made. And what Jesus knew, but Mary and Martha and Lazarus didn't know, is that was his ultimate mission. And he had to stay on the Father's timeline to accomplish that task. And by doing that, he gave Mary and Martha and Lazarus not just a few more decades together on earth, but an eternity together. What God has planned for you, if you'll continue to believe in him, it's better than what you could ask for or even imagine. In fact, God puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter two. He says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has anyone even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I think of my son Jack as, you know, they're drawing blood from his arm and he's watching blood leave his body and he can't understand what's happening. I think of him as I'm pinning him down against his will for them to do these tests on him. He can't even imagine that, you know what, if we don't do this, he, he could die. And I'm doing it out of love and I'm hurting with him, but he can't understand it. And you know what, what God has planned for you is way better than what you could ask or imagine. You, you can't grasp it mentally, but you can cling to it spiritually with the hands of faith. I saw this demonstrated by a friend of mine named Ruth. Ruth was in her late 90s. And when I met her, her husband had already gone home to heaven. She was a widow. Ruth had been married for 60 years and her husband was truly her best friend. She was a strong believer in Jesus and I was her pastor. And she had just explained to me, you know, I know every day I wake up on earth, God has a plan for me and a purpose. And she was investing in her daughter and her grandkids. But she said, I just can't wait to cross the finish line. I can't wait to be back with my husband. And Ruth and I talked about, you know, what did she want for her funeral and other things as she approached the finish line? And she told me, she said, John, my husband and I had a life verse that we would always quote to each other. It's Jeremiah 29, verse 11. And she said, John, when I'm crossing the finish line, if you can be there, I'd love it if you could just keep reading this verse to me. 
So the day came when I got a phone call from the nursing home and I went into Ruth's room and she was laying there by herself and she was too weak to sit up. She was too weak to even drink water from a straw. She was laying there with those weak lungs like Lazarus had, breathing her final breaths on earth. Her mouth was dried out. And so they showed me how to kind of set an ice cube on her lips in a way that the water would drip down in there and moisturize her mouth while she was breathing her final breaths. And I just did what she asked. I just kept reading these words. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And I could feel Ruth holding my hand. And I knew from so many conversations with her that in her heart she was grabbing onto those words that she was gonna wake up in a young, healthy body and that her husband of 60 years would be standing there and that they'd give the biggest hug they'd ever had in all of eternity and that for the rest of eternity, not just decades or centuries, but millennia and beyond, that God had a plan for her, a hope and a future. And I saw her cling to that with such a weak, frail body, but with such a strong soul. And finally she breathed that last breath and it was just this peaceful crossing of the finish line into an eternity where there's no pain and no suffering. God desires the same for you. God wants you to be able to face death not as a fearful, unpredictable thing, but as something that, you know, we don't hope for it, but when it comes, we can stare it down fearlessly knowing that my God has a future for me. My God has a plan not to harm me, but to give me a hope and to give me a future. We also see this, when I feel abandoned by God, number four, he's hurting with me. He's hurting with me. He's hurting with you. Verse 33, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and all the Jewish neighbors who had come along from the village also weeping, I don't know if you've ever cried those tears where you're crying so fast that you can't catch your breath. And so your body starts to kind of heave in these sobs because your lungs are trying to catch your breath between your tears. And Mary and Martha and these mourners, they feel so betrayed by God. They're so confused. And some of them are in these heaving sobs of grief. And when Jesus sees this, he doesn't pass by, but he's deeply moved in his spirit. And even though he knows he's minutes away from solving their problem, he hurts with them so much that he's also troubled. He hurts with you. Number five, he weeps with you. When I feel that God has abandoned me, I might not see it, I might not hear it, I might not feel it, but he is weeping with me. Just like my son Jack, as I held him down in that emergency room, he couldn't understand how much my heart hurt for him, but it did. And you can't understand how much God's heart hurts for you, but it does. He weeps with you. Some of you, God brought you here to hear these two little words in verse 35. Jesus wept. It's not unspiritual to weep. It's not unspiritual to mourn. 
It's not unspiritual to grieve. We put ourselves in Lazarus's sandals. I want you to now try to put yourself in Jesus' sandals at this moment. I want you to think that this is not just a prophet or a teacher. This is Almighty God who took on a human body. This is the God who spoke the galaxies into existence. This is the God who in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. This is the God who gathered some clay and some dirt and he breathed on it and it became the first man and woman. And he had this plan for them to live in these immortal bodies that would never get sick in a perfect paradise called Eden. And he had this plan for them that they would never see evil. They'd never even know what evil was. And as we learned last week, an adversary, the devil, came into that world, tempted them, deceived them, and unleashed a whole history of consequences on all of us. And I just wonder, as Jesus joins the heaving sobs of the group, knowing that he's moments away from raising Lazarus, I just wonder what's going through his mind if he's weeping not only for Lazarus, but for every widow in all of human history, and for every genocide in all of human history, and for all the thorns, and for all the thistles, and for all the evils, and all the cancers, all the injustices. And even though he's about to heal Lazarus, he weeps. And even though he was just about to go to the cross to begin healing us, he weeps. And just like he was going to return to Bethany to raise Lazarus, he's going to return to this earth to raise us. But until then, he weeps with us. And that's number six on your outline. God will deliver you from your pain. He will If you've placed your faith in Christ, it is a guarantee. He will deliver you. He will deliver you. And until then, when it feels like he's forgotten, when it feels like he's abandoned you, when it feels when everything you see and hear and even what people tell you is that your faith is fake and you shouldn't believe anymore and you should give up, he is going to deliver you. And in the suffering, he weeps with you. He hurts with you. Jesus wept, verse 35, and then the Jewish people there who were all thinking maybe he didn't love Lazarus, they see his emotions and they say, see how he loved him. Whatever you're going through today, you need to know that God is working for you and he's weeping with you. And I want to give you this final assurance from the book of Revelation. Last week, we looked at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis where God says, the world you live in is not how I designed it to be. It's been broken by an evil adversary named Satan. That's why there's death. That's why there's murder. And then this whole human history ends in the book of Revelation, which is in our future, when Jesus is going to return. And he's going to return not as a little gentle baby in a manger. He's going to return as a judge. He's going to return with fire in his eyes and with a sword coming out of his mouth and he is going to judge evil. He's going to judge murder. He's going to judge rape and injustice and slavery and genocide and he's going to set the record right. And for all who don't know him, that's a scary day. But for all who've trusted in his work on the cross, we know that our sins have been washed away. We've been adopted into his family And what will be a judgment day for those who don't know God will be the day of homecoming for those who do.
So do you know him? Have you called out to him? Have you believed you can do that today? Here's what God says for all who believe in Revelation 21 verse 3. I heard a loud shout from the throne in heaven saying, look, God's home is now among his people. In other words, that garden of Eden paradise that God intended for a humanity that isn't infected with evil or death, it now has been made right. And all who turned to God in their hearts will now be with God in that Eden-like paradise for eternity. And look at verse four. He will wipe away every tear. He'll wipe away the tears of divorce. He'll wipe away the tears of cancer. He'll wipe away the tears of death. He'll wipe away the tears of regret, the tears of shame, the tears of injustice. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more crying. The God who cries with us will see to it that there's no more crying, no more pain, and all these are gone. Not for a few months, not for a few centuries, but forever. When you're hurting, he's working for you. He's weeping with you.